0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we bring back Adam Coffey, CEO, board member, best-selling author, and acclaimed international speaker. Adam, in his 21 years of experience as a CEO, completed 58 acquisitions with notable outcomes measured in the billions. On this week's episode, we talk about Adam's new book, and we talk about the private equity pyramid. Growth Stages and Revenue Milestones, Building a Great Culture, Unit Economics and Financial Fundamentals, Product-Based Business Essentials, and much more. All right, let's begin this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Adam, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we've had you on the show before. For our audience out there, please recommend going to our archive and checking out that episode. It was a fantastic episode on private equity. There's so much covered, but between then and now, update us what you've been up to. And also for our audience that maybe have not listened to that podcast, give us a brief introduction of your career up to this point.
1: Yeah, sure. Hey, Sean, it's good to see you. Hello to all your listeners. It's good to be back. Glad to be back. That means I wasn't horrible the first time, right? Yeah. And and you could stomach another hour with me or 45 minutes or whatever. So I'm glad to be here. Hello to all your listeners out there. So for those who don't know me, four things about me. Number one, veteran U.S. Army. Military taught a young version of me something about discipline, teamwork, leadership. Engineering and a pilot. Engineering made me a, a meticulous planner. Being a pilot just recently, did it really dawn on me that my philosophy about when I'm building an empire and designing, I design from the end back. I pick my exit point and I reverse engineer it and it dawned on me that comes from being a pilot. Pilots don't take off without knowing where you're going. You plan from the destination back to where you're taking off from and you plan your route. And so such an integral part of my life is the idea of designing my exit first and then reverse engineering the company that I'm building and working with. I blame being an engineer for meticulous planning. I blame pilots for teaching me how to start something with an end in mind. And then... 10 years at General Electric, I worked at GE during the Camelot era, Jack Welsh at the helm. Fortune number one on the Fortune 500 list. Tech doesn't exist yet. This company has grown so fast. It's growing. It's doubling in size every 2.8 years. The world's largest company is doubling every 2.8 years. And it also dawned on me recently, that's where my mantra for achieving at least a 30% plus compound annual growth rate comes from. Because if you hit 30% growth, you're going to double your company in size in 2.8 years. I learned how to do this as a young executive working for Jack at General Electric. And then came a 21-year career as a CEO, building three national companies for nine different private equity firms and multiple exits along the way. I was a buy and build guy, a turnaround guy. I bought 58 companies. I have billions in exits. I think the last count was 2.48 billion in uh, successful exits. And then About the time you and I last spoke, I was bored. I don't know if I had rotated out of the seat then or if I was in the process of doing it, but what happened? So I got bored after 21 years of building companies for private equity. I was just bored. I was bored impacting one company at a time. And I really had wanted to inspire a generation. I started writing my books, which are all up there. And I loved working with multiple companies at a time. So I left the CEO seat. I told the world I'm done being a CEO. I went ahead and started a consulting business and I'm having more, I'm working more hours today than I worked as a CEO. I'm actually making more money than I made as a CEO. And I thought my biggest paydays were behind me. I'm learning my biggest paydays are still yet to come in front of me. And as I'm looking through the world as a CEO, you have to ignore everything that's all the opportunities that are around you because you're locked in on running your one company. And when you free yourself of the bonds of one, Company as a CEO, it's like all of a sudden opportunity just starts coming, falling out of the sky. Today, I'm doing three things primarily. I'm still working with private equity. I'm doing operating partner kind of work. I work with about a dozen different firms. I sit on some boards. I invest in firms and funds. I help them evaluate investments. I help them coach, mentor CEOs. And so I'm still doing the PE thing, just doing it from a different side of the table now and not the tactical execution guy running a company. I help them with strategy, with investments, and coaching other people who are, are responsible for tactical execution now. I'm also working with founders. I have a peer group with about 40 people in it. I call it the chairman group. It's think of like Vistage or YPO, but at a high level, taught by me. And these are successful entrepreneurs, some with revenues measured in the hundreds of millions. And so where do they go for a a peer group? I I like to think I'm one of the Cadillac peer groups that are out there. So I'm doing that. Also working with founders one-on-one who at some point will be exiting most likely to private equity. So I help private equity evaluate risk. And decide what to buy. I help founders by addressing the risk so that the PE firms never see it because we've already addressed it so that they can sell for maximum value. And so I'm also working with founders, still writing books. I'm now teaching seminars on a global basis. Hundreds of entrepreneurs will fly into Dallas here to see me. I do them all here locally. And uh, I do uh, seminars a year that people get to come and and hang out with me for three, four days at a time. Um, And those have been a huge success. And I'm still writing my latest book, actually has done the best of all. And my first book is still hits number one. still a number one bestseller in different categories all, all the time. But this one, I was blessed. In the first 24 hours, I hit number one in 15 countries on three continents. And so it's done really well. It's called Empire Builder. If you think of my other two books, they were subject matter expert books. What is private equity? How does it work? Why should I care? A whole generation of entrepreneurs is learning how to build a business and get a, a great exit and outcome based on that book. Speaking of exits the exit strategy playbook is all about exiting your business empire builders the roadmap it's the how to go from startup to a million dollars something only 7% of entrepreneurs who start a company ever achieve. How to go from a million to 10 million, which is something only 4% of the 7% ever achieve. How to get to the first 100 million. How to turn it into a billion-dollar empire. And these are the tools, the roadmaps, the strategies, the different kinds of behaviors that entrepreneurs have to go through in these different stages in order to be successful. And I did a lot of research and analysis on this. Remember, I bought 58 companies. So I gave 58 entrepreneurs, Entrepreneurs' wheelbarrows full of money. I made them wealthy. I deconstructed their businesses. I owned their businesses. I then combined them and built these bigger ones. And so a lot of research and effort went into this one, really, to, to try to determine what goes wrong with the ninety-three percent who never get to a million. What goes wrong with the the ninety-six who hit a million? Ninety-six percent who hit a million, but don't make it to ten million. And really focused on how to simplify success so that anybody can achieve it.
0: So that's what I've been okay, doing. So I think one, I, I'm surprised because it's sounds like you have a lot of available free time. So that's one thing, but everything you said there, I think we have the basis for every question for this interview. So let's just take what you said and pick it apart. First thing for the audience, private equity. A lot of the audience at Silicon Valley Podcast, we're very familiar with venture capitalists, but not so much private equity. You dive a little into private equity. And then I'm really curious about, I mean, also we focused a lot on free seed a round, B round, but you talked about zero to 1 million revenue, 1 million to 10 million revenue, 10 million to 100 million revenue. So I'm curious, one, private equity, could you give us a little bit more background on that? And then two, those different stages for that revenue, why those numbers and what do well, founders need to know to get from that zero to one, that one to 10, that 10 to 100? So yeah, a lot if, of impact there.
1: Yeah. So let's start with the just the basics, the venture capital versus private equity, because I consider venture capital to be a subset of private equity, right? So venture capitalists, we invest in ideas. We are looking for the next home run and we'll strike out quite a bit because everything that we're doing at the plate, we're trying to hit home runs. Venture capitalists invest in ideas. When I move to the next category, which is the category that I play with, it's actually the biggest category of private equity. So VC is a piece of private equity. By nature, it's private capital. But the place where I play is called buyout funds. Buyout funds are the largest segment of private equity. Buyout funds buy mature companies. And these are companies that have a history, maybe good or bad, but they have a history and they've survived. If I look at the three empires that I built, each company before I got there as a CEO and did something special with it had been in business for over 40 years. And so for order over 40 years, somebody owned it. They had customers they were serving. There was revenue. There was growth. There were good times, bad times. Usually when I come in, it's a turnaround. There's something that went south. Wow we forgot how to grow, we're struggling. And I get to a business and it's been stagnant, something's wrong with it. But buyout funds by their very nature have to buy a controlling interest in the investments that they make. So private equity, generally speaking, think of mutual funds. Mutual funds aggregate money from a bunch of investors. They can then run out. A fund manager decides what to buy. The people who invest have no say on what gets bought, but they can decide when to stay, when to come, when to go, and they have total liquidity. In a private equity buyout fund, it exists for 10 years. There's no liquidity. I'm going to commit capital that I won't see again for up to 10 to 12 years. And there's a fund manager. He's aggregating money. It's the PE firm is aggregating the money from a bunch of different investors. It's typically about a five million dollar minimum investment. They're deciding what companies to buy. They only have 10 years to do it, roughly. And so in the first five years, they're buying stuff. In the middle time period, they're improving it. And in the back, they're selling it. And I think Think of it as an investor, because I also invest in private equity firms and funds. Think of it as a tide that rolls out and rolls in, and it takes 10 years for the tide to roll out and come back. And as it's rolling out in the beginning, you're writing checks as an investor. Every time they buy a company, they need money, they're calling capital, you're sending capital, it's all flowing out. About five years, they turn off the spigot, stop buying stuff. And then for the next five years, the tide is coming back. And so as companies have been built, they've been improved, they're now being sold, and the money is coming back to you in the last five years of, of the fund's life. And so private equity, the buyout fund category, in the way I say it in my books, there's like really four main categories. You do have venture capital, it's a subset of private equity. You also have buyout funds where I play, we buy mature companies and we grow them and sell them. And so we're not an investor in ideas. We're in an investor in a thesis that we can do something special with a mature company that potentially hasn't been done in that company before. And then there's debt funds. And so private equity is also the world's largest source of non-bank capital. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I need money, if I'm not getting it from a bank and, or an SBA loan, or I'm not bootstrapping, I can borrow money from private equity debt funds, which loan money to people who are buying companies and doing mergers and acquisitions. And so a lot of activity around that. And then finally, the, the fourth piece is fund of funds, which is like a mutual fund. I don't know what I want to buy. I've got only got enough money to make one investment rather than buy and pick one of 6000 firms and probably 20000 30000 funds I'll buy a fund of fund which then takes and pools money and invests it in a bunch of different funds and gives me a broader exposure to the asset class you think about bootstrapping and startups and venture capital, you're at the bottom of what I call the private equity pyramid. You've got no revenue, you're scrambling, you're trying to put something together. In the bottom of the pyramid, think of it this way, there are 33 million small businesses in America today in the bottom of the pyramid. And as companies are getting bigger, they're becoming rarer. And that's why there's a pyramid. Because while there's 33 million small businesses in the United States, there's only 3,000 companies at the top of the pyramid that have a billion dollars in revenue or more. So you've got 6,000 PE firms. Some of them are really big, like Apollo, Carlisle, Blackstone, KKR, all these names that we know. And then you got 6,000 firms going down the pyramid from them. And they all do the same exact thing in the buyout fund category. They all invest 6 to 8% of their fund in any one company. And they're going to hold it for roughly about five years. And they're trying to get about a three times multiple of invested capital. Because of the hold period, only five years, big funds like Apollo, KKR, Blackstone, they would raise like a $10 to $30 billion fund. They can't buy small companies because there's not enough time. It would take them 100 years to put $30 billion to work if I'm buying a bunch of small companies. And so big firms buy big companies, small firms buy small companies. Because there's so many more small companies than there are large, the prices we pay for those is a lot less. Last roll-up I did, I bought 23 companies. On average, I paid five times. These companies fit in the bottom two runs of the pyramid. When I put them together, I've climbed the pyramid and I sold it for 14 times because I'm now a bigger company. I'm rarer. These bigger funds have fewer things to buy and so they pay up and there's a, a different kind of competition. And that causes the multiple expansion to happen. And as a result, I can buy small companies cheaper, put them together, sell a big company for more. So when I'm talking to you in my book about like the stages of growth, what I'm in my mind tying these different stages to, how do I get out of the gates? How do I get revenue? And for me, it's like... So not not too long ago, I went over to see a billionaire friend and he was talking to me about his business, large business that was struggling. And multiple CEOs have tried to fix this and have failed. And he's like, why can't anybody get this right? And I said, it's because everybody's trying to fix world hunger. You got this big, giant, multi-billion dollar company that your people are trying to fix. And at the end of the day day, we got to break it down to unit level economics. You know, if I can fix one truck, one service call. And one technician, if I can fix that event all the way through my supply chain, I've just fixed your $6 billion company. And I fixed it by going to the unit level economics, getting it dialed in, and then replicating it across 6,000 trucks. And it dawned on me that one of the mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they're starting out is they don't understand the basics around unit level economics. Early in this book, I talk about, first of all, We need to think about when we're starting a company, we want to think about something Warren Buffett once said, which is don't invest in something you don't understand. Well, if I'm starting a company, the way I think of it is invest in what people need. Let's talk about needs versus wants. I need to have my toilet fixed when it's clogged. I need my roof fixed when it's raining on my head and I'm sitting in my living room. I need certain things. I want a dress for Friday night, my wife. I need a new outfit. I want a new truck. I want my big four by four monster truck. I have needs. I have wants. This world is volatile. It's a volatile place. Economic cycles are happening quicker and there's like volatility everywhere. If I'm a business that's focused on needs, you can delay the spend on needs somewhat. But at the end of the day, it's like you, you can't forego the expense forever. Great example, I built an empire in laundry when commercial laundry, right? I learned during the great recession that people who are unemployed don't do as much laundry as people who are employed. But even if I'm unemployed, at some level I got to do laundry. It's a need. And if I focus on building a company around needs, not wants, then at the end of the day, I'm not as I'm insulated from economic cycles and downturns. So, from there, I'd rather have recurrent revenue rather than project-based revenue. If I have regularly recurring revenue, if I'm servicing needs, I have a much higher probability of success building a company and then selling it for a high price. And in the first 100,000, before I can build a billion-dollar business, I have to build a perfect $100,000 business, a perfect million-dollar business, and so in my book, I talk about this mythical landscaping company that we're going to start, and what's my unit-level economics? It's one truck, one crew of two people, and a lawnmower, a weed whacker, and a blower. How many lawns can they cut in a day? How much revenue can I charge per lawn? That's my revenue per unit-level economic. How much does it cost to put that crew in a truck and have them work in every day, and Like, that's my cost. I need, I apply this thing I call the 30 20 10 rule. I need at least 30% gross margin in order for my company to be successful. I need my back office or sgna to be less than 20% because I need a minimum 10% profit, net profit at the bottom. And so if I focus on needs, not wants, if I focus on recurrent revenue streams versus project-based, and if I think about getting my unit-level economics dialed in at 30-20-10, then I can now make a mathematical formula for how many crews I need to get to a million dollars, how many crews I need to get to $10 million, what are my capital expenditures to get to a million to get to 10 million. And I, I can create this basic formula for success. And if the company works small, I promise you it will work big. And the biggest mistake I see entrepreneurs making is that they focus on the wrong things. And so if I get the unit level economics right, what do they say in the world of VC in your world? It's like fail fast, fail often. Time is what we can't buy, Sean. That's the one thing we don't have. So we need to make it work small we can, if we get it working small, we can then scale. And then I turn to what are the tools to scale in different sizes? Basic differences between private equity, the pyramid, and just some of the learnings. I didn't mean to go off on like this 15-minute tangent. My apologies.
0: No, Adam, that was perfect. More questions. One, find out a little bit more about economics. But even before that, why that zero to one? What happens at 1 million? What happens at 10 million? What happens at 100? Why were those picked out? Yeah. First of all, because the SBA stats
1: talk about how many entrepreneurs get to a million in revenue, and it's only 7%. And I was thinking to myself, why do 93% of the people never get to a million? What are they doing wrong? And how can I help them? As a guy with billions of dollars in exits, how can I help them succeed? And I figured out that really what we're talking about here is we need to get unit level economics working small. How many entrepreneurs have I heard tell me, if I can just get more revenue, I'll figure out how to be profitable. Give me any business. And I'm looking at what are the unit level economics. If I'm in real estate, it's one door. If I'm a multifamily housing guy, it's one property. If I'm a single family home rental market, if I'm a product-based business, it's one product. And if I'm a service business, it's one truck or one service event. It's really, it's about getting out of the gate. So I've got an idea, I'm gonna start a business and I'm not necessarily talking about the latest software gadget or high tech thing. It's like some of these companies can be really boring boring. And I still can build a billion dollar empire out of HVAC or a commercial laundry. I think about needs versus wants and what have you. So the reason I, I'm focused on the first million is because to be successful in that first million, you need to be an anal retentive control freak, who micromanages the hell out of everything to make sure that you get the, the right unit level economics created and dialed in. And then to go from a million to 10 million, It's a mathematical formula where I'm taking my unit level economics. So my mythical landscaping crew, I need six crews. To get to a million dollars in revenue i need 51 crews to get to 10 million in revenue i need 1.4 million in capital expenditures to buy all the equipment that those people are going to need to get to 10 million dollars in revenue and at a 15 percent gross margin guess what my capital expenditures my payback is a year less than a year and so i focus on getting out of the gates and finding initial success to the first million I'm perfecting unit level economics. Then I'm focused on scaling to 10 million, above 10 million. Interesting things start to happen. When I get to about 30 million in revenue, I can't be an anal retentive control freak anymore because I now run out of bandwidth. And so I have to learn how to shift gears and become what I call, instead of the first chair player in every section of the orchestra, I need to learn how to become a conductor. And I need to learn how to manage process. That happens at around 30 million. The other thing interesting about 30 million is if I'm running a business with about a 10 to 15% EBITDA margin, I'm getting to my first exit point. And so based on the way the private equity pyramid works, there's natural exit points which are places where different sized private equity firms are going to come in and start scooping me up. And that first rung of the ladder is at 4 million dollars in EBITDA. If I can go from 0 to 4 million of EBITDA, there's, there are buyers below 4 million, don't get me wrong. But where I find what I'll call a traditional PE firm that has limited partners, they raise funds, they invest the capital, the smallest firms tend to be investing out of small funds that focus at about three to four million in EBITDA as their entry point. Over their five year hold period, their goal is to take that three to four million dollar EBITDA company up to about 10, 12 million of EBITDA and sell it to the next PE firm who's going to take it to about 40 million of EBITDA, who's going to take it to the next firm to sell it up to about $8 Eighty million Up to the next firm, is going to go to 150, 200 million of EBITDA. And then finally, private company. There are five natural swim lanes that PE is swimming in looking for stuff to buy. And it's like a relay race. And so I'm building a company. As I'm running around, I'm passing the baton from one buyer. I'm a seller now. I'm passing it to a buyer And then they take the baton and they take it up to the next level. And it's all based on that original math I told you. They all invest 6 to 8% of their fund in any one company, never more than 12% for asset diversification rules that they build into their charter. Boy, if we can learn just how private equity really works and works well, and we understand that, we can... I don't want to call it manipulate because that sounds like a bad word but i can feed it what it needs to take from it what i want which is wealth and the capital i need to grow from various stages so million dollars was let's be a unicorn already not the billion dollar kind but the kind that's the 93 percent who fail to get to a million let's be one of the seven percent that gets to a million and then the data surrounds 10 million let's be one of the four percent that gets there now let's go cook with gas and first exit comes in at about thirty million. Second exit depending on margins of the business my next exit point is really i want to get to 10 million of ebitda or a little bit higher between 10 and 15 natural selling point i get multiple expansion as my reward bigger firms are going to buy me and so i'm really when i'm thinking about someone who's starting up and building a business first of all, I love buying existing businesses to serve as a platform because they have a history of revenue and customers. I can analyze the financials and I can make my own assessment as to how good they are. I think that's potentially the best way to look at it. And and so... As I'm building this empire, I've got these different points where activity is taking place. And that's, so that's why I picked 1 million, 10 million, 100 million. And I don't want to build a business. So if I can get to 10 million of EBITDA, I don't want to own a business larger than that as a sole shareholder. I really don't. I want to bring in institutional capital. And here's a, another issue, Sean. When I talk to entrepreneurs, people who are running on their own, they haven't yet sold to institutional capital. If I build a spreadsheet, what size are you today? What's your growth rate? Where are you going to be at in five years and in ten years? What do you think your multiples worth that you're going to sell for? And then I show them a different path. Okay, assume you sell to me today, and you tit. Take asset diversification, volatile world. Let's get some money in the bank and take care of our families forever. Now let's keep going. I'm going to use, you're going to be a minority shareholder riding the coattails of of private equity. Now I've got a big ass checkbook. I'm going to buy a bunch of companies. You're going to get a piece of that action as a rollover investor. And then at five years, I'm going to sell it again. I've climbed the PE pyramid faster than you can climb it building your one company because I just bought eight and I put them together. And in three years, I sold it and I got a 4X multiple of invested capital. Your second payday is bigger than the first payday. And now we recharge up and do it again. And I buy 15 companies in the next whole period. And then we sell it again five years after that. You get three paydays during a 10-year run with me. You get one payday during a 10-year run with yourself. I'm climbing the pyramid faster than you. I'm using someone else's money to do it. And every time I sell it, you get to take a bunch, of wheelbarrow full a gold home and you get asset diversification and you're building wealth outside of your business. And that's important too. And so I, I tell nobody should build a billion-dollar company alone. It needs to be built with institutional capital and shareholders.
0: Adam, is that if you roll over some equity into the new, the new buyer or how do you position yourself so you get these multiple wins?
1: Well, first of all, We sell to a PE firm, we're the platform, or I'm an add-on to a strategic who's backed by private equity. And because by nature of the fact that they're going to sell the company every five years, I know that I'm going to get paid every five years when that company sells. If I'm the platform, PE brings a checkbook, but they don't bring The leadership team, I'm the leadership team. They're backing me. I get to stay. They want me to roll over money so that I'm invested alongside of them. So that way, I'm going to work hard to get myself a good payday and they're going to get a good payday, or I'm going to work hard for them to get a good payday because I'm a co investor. I'm going to get a good payday. It's like we get a line. And so they want me to be a rollover investor. And my math typically is I say for every dollar you make selling your small company, so at about a $4 million EBITDA, a service business, I'm going to get eight times. So I'll just use that as a number. I'm going to sell it for between 30 and $40 million, depending on the industry and what I'm doing. And if I roll over $0.30 cents for every dollar of, of sale price, I take $0.70 cents out, I pay taxes, I get it invested elsewhere away from this business so that I've got my own diversification. And I rolled thirty cents forward. My career batting average is better than a four times multiple of invested capital at exit. And so, thirty cents rolled over at a four x multiple yields a dollar twenty. And so, my second check is actually bigger than my first check, and my third check is bigger than my second check. And my personal record is selling the same company five times in about thirteen years. And so, I've made it an art and a science to get multiple paydays from the same company For you entrepreneurs out there who are starting something, it's like, why the hell sell your company once when you can sell it twice? If I if you sell the company and walk away, you are leaving money on the table and you now have to figure out what to do next. And you may or may not be successful. Why not stay with something that is successful, that you got a first bite of the apple, become a co-investor, a rollover investor. Control doesn't matter. You know why I know this? Because Jeff Bezos tells me who's the richest man on the planet. Well, that changes from day to day, but not too long ago, it was Jeff Bezos. Jeff was the richest guy on the planet. And what did he say? I only own 11 12% of Amazon which means he's the minority shareholder that 88% of the stock is owned by somebody else, yet he's the richest man on the planet. So wherever the hell we came up with this idea that we have to have control in order to be successful, I think is a misnomer. And so a lot of opportunity as we get out of the gates and start building a company to really build something special.
0: Question on all this, you're building this empire. How does culture impact revenue? How are they related? So I would say when I first became a CEO years and years ago, and because I started
1: at the bottom of the pyramid or the bottom of the ladder, corporate ladder, and I worked my way up, I held literally every job you can hold on an org chart. I valued people because I used to be the guy in the truck. And quickly in my life, I decided I understood that in my world that culture and revenue are directly correlated just directly, so here goes these AI balloons. I did something with my fingers that cued this up. See, if I do thumbs up, like, watch that. I got fireworks now. It's like, I'm still learning this Zoom AI stuff that there is out there. But at any rate, I digress. Culture and revenue. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I'm preaching culture and revenue. Why? Because I recognize that I'm running service companies. And when I'm running service companies, you can't store service in a box. And so if I can't store my company's product in a box that a customer can store and take down and sprinkle on something that's broken, it means my product is actually people who are delivering service. So my product is people. And if I take care of people, I get an engaged workforce, takes care of customers, love being taken care of. And then revenue just rains from the sky. And now can I make fireworks happen? Yes. Revenue rains from the skies. If I follow that belief, right? I learned early on and it wasn't popular back then. I'd say today everyone recognizes so it's so hard to hire good people and keep good people if you don't treat them well you're in trouble and so people are now starting to broadly think that I have to have a strong culture in order to keep and retract you know attract, attract talent keep talent I knew that 25 years ago, and so I believe very strongly that if you're going to build an empire, you've got to take care of people. You take care of people, they'll bring their friends, they'll recommend you to others, and you'll be able to find the talent that you need. And hey, I, I've run companies with thousands of employees. If you want to attract thousands of people and get them to bust their butt and work hard for your growth, you better take care of them. You better be transparent. You better give them a voice. So I learned early, revenue and culture directly correlated.
0: There's one thing in your book that when I looked at it, it was one of those, this is so obvious, but at the same time, I don't think it's talked about. And that had to do with who owns price at a company and the growth levers that one can pull. Can you talk about that? It's interesting you
1: mentioned price because in every company, I'm not talking some or most, in every company I've ever run or looked at, nobody owned price. Nobody was maximizing price. Think about price for a minute. What's been happening in the last, couple of years in our economy. Inflation. Prices for everything's going up. I would tell you, even if the cost of your products or services haven't been going up, you've got perfect air cover today to be raising prices. And no one cares because everyone's paying more for everything. So go get you some price. But when I think about organic growth, I can either sell the same amount of stuff for a higher price... That's organic growth. My revenue will go up. My earnings will go up. Or I can sell more stuff at the same price. That's organic growth. Or my perfect position to be in, let's sell more stuff and at a higher price. And I get a higher organic growth rate and I get a faster growth rate in earnings than I do top line because I'm every penny I raise price immediately follows falls to the bottom line. My cost hasn't gone up because I raised my price. All that's gone up is the profit the cost has remained neutral. So I find that it's just overlooked. And I've never walked into a company as a consultant or as a CEO where I haven't been able to get price. People leave price on the table. So what happens is about every three years, CEO bitches and I need price. And the sales team goes out and scrambles and they raise prices and we get some price. And then everybody goes back to their day job and no one's managing price. And so one of the early hires I like to make in a company is to hire someone to manage and own price. I need to make it an actual, somebody's got to own this. And as I'm planning the different growth, what's my five-year hold period? What's my five-year strategy to my next exit? And at what size do I want to get to? And how do I maximize my potential opportunity between where I'm at and where I want to get yet price is a large component of that. Organic growth is a component of that. Yes, MA is important and I'm a buy and build guy. But if all you do is buy stuff and put it together, you don't get rewarded with an outsized multiple. You also have to be a strong organic growth company. And so to grow earnings, which is really all we care about, it's not so much about revenue as it is EBITDA. I'm going to sell to private equity. Private equity buys as a multiple of EBITDA. All I care about is EBITDA. So as I'm growing EBITDA, the levers above Include price, volume, and improving margins is also a component of that. And so, all of these different things that I can attack, most companies are not actively managing price. They're leaving revenue on the table every day. Think about it this way if I was selling a product for a dollar, could I raise it to a dollar one? Would anybody care? I think most people would say, probably not. I don't care. It's a buck. It's a buck 01. Well, what about a buck 02, buck three, buck four, buck five? What about a buck 25? At what point does the market say, I need to look elsewhere? Or am I so price driven and commoditized that I can't raise my prices 3% a year, 2% a year, especially in an inflationary environment like we've got now? So I, I think people overlook price and it's an important aspect of growth.
0: When rolling up these companies, when expanding, growing, what are some of the mistakes that people make when implementing strategies, when, when combining everything? What are some... If you didn't have the experience of doing this so many times, that first time when you brought in a company, what were some mistakes that new people when they acquire that first company, that first tuck in seem to make? Well, the
1: first mistake usually starts before they acquire the first company, and that's they don't have a strategy. They just say, everyone out there, all these private equity firms are buying a bunch of companies and slamming them together. I want to get me some of that action. I want to do some of that stuff. And I don't have a strategy. And I, I, I think the biggest problem people have is they don't know what good looks like before they start looking. And so I spend a lot of time on the front end before I buy anything. What's my strategy? And generally speaking, in most companies, the strategies can be fairly common. I'm extending my geographic reach. I am a regional company. I want to become a national company. I'm a national company. I want to become an international company. And so extend my reach. I can add capability. I've got a great customer and I sell them one thing. If I make these strategic pivots and go off from my center of my fairway, and I look at ancillary revenue streams, in my case, I could use examples like I was doing grocery store refrigeration in a company, 90% of what I did, and I made strategic pivots. I started buying engineering companies, and I made strategic pivots, and I started buying HVAC, commercial HVAC repair companies. Why this one? Because it was 90 plus percent recurrent revenue, all service-based. The company I was in was 50% product. Project-based construction, 50% was service. Well, I want to get rewarded by Wall Street. I need more service, more recurring revenue. So let's start a division where 90% of any company I buy is going to be service. And so I buy some companies there and I'm changing the dynamics of my overall business. I added this capability by buying engineering companies because my customers, I'm finding about opportunities when they're issuing a bid and all my competitors are getting the same bid and I've got to compete on price. I figured out that all my customers outsourced engineering. So the first time they wanted to decide what to build, internally they came up with, this is what we're gonna do, but we haven't told anybody because we're very secretive. The first thing they hired to go outside was engineering to design the stores that they wanted to build. And I found out, boy, if I do the engineering, I know a year or two in advance where they're going to spend money, what they're going to build. And I've got a couple years advance notice to take the bid off the table before it ever becomes a bid. And so I start creating an ecosystem around a customer. I'm making these strategic pivots. And every time I make a pivot, I'm generally buying a company to give me the capability so that I don't have to develop it. I'm buying expertise in a new revenue stream that's adjacent to what I've already got. So I'm extending my reach. I'm strategically making pivots to add capability. And then usually for me in a service business, I'm adding density. The evil part of guys in trucks, not to sound sexist ladies, just most of the companies I've run have been guys in trucks doing dirty jobs, as Mike Rowe likes to say. And when I think about that stuff, Most of the time, I need a lot of work to do in a small geography so that they spend more time fixing things, building things, installing things, and less time driving. Because driving, they're not making any revenue. It's wasted time. I don't want them doing paperwork. I call it the difference between high-value work and low-value work. And the way I get trained people or tradespeople to do more high-value work is I have to have more density lot of clients in a small geography. So my strategy, extend the footprint, make pivots, add capability, and then add density. Now I know what I'm doing. Now I can look at each of those segments and say, what would the perfect company look like? Before I ever go out looking to buy anything, just what would the perfect acquisition look like? And I'll build a profile. I'm looking for entrepreneurs of a certain age. I'm looking for entrepreneurs of a certain revenue size, a certain earnings size. And I'm looking for people who will stay, become a rollover investor and help me build. Or if I don't have risk and revenue retention, I want entrepreneurs who are going to leave and just give me their book of business because that's what I'm buying. And I've done it both ways. So I come up with a very detailed thesis around what the strategy is, what good looks like. And then I'm very disciplined as I'm evaluating companies to make sure I'm only buying things that meet my filters or my criteria that help me affect a strategy. When I do it in that fashion before I've ever bought anything, my chances of succeeding in a buy and build just go up exponentially. And the mistake people make is they don't have the strategy, they don't know what good looks like, and they fall victim to what I call shiny penny syndrome. And shiny penny syndrome is, I want to do an acquisition so everything I look at looks good. I overlook all the warts and the reasons I shouldn't do the deal because I'm just i in deal mode. I want to get a deal done. And so I find that's where actually M&A goes south is people don't do. If you don't build the foundation, the house doesn't stand. And so in a buy and build, people need to really focus on foundational aspects and they got to get strategy right. And they got to know what good looks like. And when they don't do that, hit or miss, whether they have a good acquisition or
0: not. Adam, I think we could talk for an entire day, but I want to be respectful of your time. If anyone out there wants to get find out more information about you and get a copy of your book, what's the best way to go about doing that?
1: Well, Amazon, Apple, hardcover, softcover, the Audible version of this one actually got delayed. It's it's done. I'm waiting for you. It should be out any day now. My, my books are available anywhere you buy books, or you can go to adamcoffee.com, C-O-F-F-E-Y.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I engage with people every day on LinkedIn. They're reaching out from all over the globe. I love that. I don't have a team of people who give you some form response. It's me. Be patient and be persistent, but I do try to answer people and Thank them for reaching out, and if I can be helpful to people, I, I try to be helpful to people. So I think that's the, the the best way to to do it. You can engage with me in different ways. There's like there's opportunities like this where it's a podcast. It's free. They don't have to. don't have to buy anything. My books, if you're a Kindle person, are all like three bucks, and I, I donate all my royalties to charity. So it's never been about money with my books. It's about helping entrepreneurs and educating them you can reach out to me. I teach seminars. There's just many different ways to reach out to me. But I appreciate everybody out there who does reach out to me and engages with my material.
0: Fantastic. We'll have links in the show notes. And for our audience out there, please check out the SiliconValleyPodcast.com, where we'll have this, our archived episodes, and you'll find out what we're up to. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. But with that, the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at theSiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.